Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Is there a more beautiful invitation in the Bible than that? Is there a more beautiful invitation anywhere, any place, any time, any religion? I mean, why doesn't everybody accept the Lord Jesus when you hear an invitation like that? And why do those of us who call ourselves Christians sometimes find ourselves restless? Well, let me introduce you to three weary and burdened people from inside and outside of the church, and perhaps you'll find yourself in one or more of these. Let's call the first person the weary worker. So young, curious, the world at their feet as they start their working life, excited to have some money now, a car, some independence. They're following what it seems you're supposed to do in life, hoping for happiness. Haven't quite found it yet, but certainly not going to admit that out loud to anybody. The hope is for career advancement. The only problem is they look at everybody who's older at work and they seem to be bored off their tree. The hope is to find a soulmate and they swipe left and right uh, but end up feeling cheap. No one seems to want to commit. They're following some unwritten script for life that seems to come to them from online or from uh, the world around them but they feel weary burdened on a treadmill not quite sure who they're trying to please and if God is there well he or she is outdated is oppressive and they're not interested thanks what about an older couple let's call them the burdened boomers now this couple have been there done that run the treadmill and have resigned themselves to some level of disappointment They're glad to have work behind them, though. They're trying to travel now and relax a bit. Boredom's still a bit of a problem, though. So he spends heaps of time kind of buying and selling on eBay. Most of her time is spent looking after the growing kids and the grandkids. Uh, Kids were supposed to be what gave them meaning, they thought. But as it's turned out, well, one of their children has severe health concerns, another started a family but ended up uh, married to a drug addict and the third got married only to have that bust up within a matter of months. Even family, it seems, now feels like a burden. And they know their days of good health are slipping away fast, weary, burdened, wondering what's next. They do make it to church from time to time Uh, The wife wears crystals around her neck and prefers to meditate quietly at home. Outward religion just seems like a wet blanket. Rules keeping up appearances. They're happy to kind of drift away from all of that. But where are they drifting to? Weary. Burdened. Or person number three. We'll call them the shouldn't be burdened Christian. So this person might be sitting in front of you, beside you, it might be you. The shouldn't be burdened Christian is not exactly the weary worker or the burdened boomer, but may have some things that they relate to. They've come to Jesus, their soul is eternally secure. They should have rest, but somehow they don't feel it. 
They have Jesus, but their faith is feeling laden down with demands and requirements. They're not even that confident that they're saved. And uneasy, they turn to one new distraction after another. It might be the exercise fad, the new job, the new hobby, buying and selling and travel and longing for whatever the next life stage is supposed to be. They should have rest, but are restless. Something is wrong. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus' invitation is in fact God's invitation from some centuries before. Uh, look with me at Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And look at this. You will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. But Jesus makes that same offer to the stubborn people of his day and the stubborn people, us, of our day, that offer of soul rest. The question is, will we accept? Will we walk in it? Well, a look at God in this passage should encourage us to do just that, to accept Jesus' offer with open arms. So we meet here a God who is both fearsome and wonderful. Fearsome and wonderful. And those two things go hand in hand. And so we're going to look at those two angles on God's character in turn. So point one, God is fearsome, and so you need his rest. It's a necessity for God's judgment is coming. So don't be fooled by the delay for now. That was John the Baptist's problem. The chapter opens, you would have noticed, with John asking a question from jail. He sends messages to Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? In other words, Jesus, where's the judgment? I'm stuck here in jail. Why is King Herod getting away with this? Why haven't you brought in the promised day of the Lord? Are you really the Messiah, cuz? Well, Jesus answers him. And I'm going to paraphrase from verses 5 and 6 to simplify it. He answers him, yes, look, I am the one to come. Look at my miracles. You know, they fit the pattern of the prophets. So when the prophets talked about me judging, well... They were right, and I'm going to do that, but just wait. The day of the Lord has begun, but there's more to it than you realise, John. Now, I guess John was thinking the day of the Lord was like a single day because the Old Testament prophets looked forward to that day of the Lord to come like a freight train bearing down upon them. But the train of the day of the Lord ends up being long. Right? So John was just looking at the headlight coming towards him, but as the train arrives, you kind of step aside and watch it go by and you realise the first carriage is Jesus' miracles, the second his teaching, the third the, the cross of Christ, and then there's the resurrection, and then Christ reigning in heaven, the gospel now going out to the nations it's now the day of salvation for all people. That's the, that's the carriage we're in, right? But the final carriage of Jesus coming back in judgment is yet to come. It's coming, but not yet. 
And by the way, there's a lesson for us there, isn't there? I mean, we might find ourselves like John, suffering for being a Christian, wondering what's going on. Well, we've got to remember that last carriage is coming. It is coming when God will judge those who oppress us. Then what's really amazing about Jesus' interaction with John is what Jesus reveals about John's identity because that says a lot about Jesus' identity as well. In verse 10, he quotes the Old Testament book of Malachi and he's saying that John was the great and final prophet announcing the arrival of God. So let me read a chunk from Malachi here. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. That's the bit Jesus quotes, but it reads on. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And who can endure the day of his coming? So I will come to put you on trial. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. John was the messenger to prepare the way for the Lord to come, but it turns out that the Lord is the Lord. It's the Lord, Yahweh, God. And so we should fear Jesus for who he really is, divine, powerful. We need his offer of life. When he says, come to me, He's saying, come to me because I'm your judge and I'm offering you pardon. Join my kingdom. And you know what? He says here in these verses, join my kingdom and you can be greater than John the Baptist, right? Because you're going to see me closer than he ever did. You're going to understand about the cross. You'll have the Holy Spirit. You'll be greater than him. Come. And then reading on to the next paragraph, Jesus just despairs of the indifference of the people, the stubborn hearts of the people. He won't tolerate such a response for long. Israel just has to repent. And again, note Jesus is to be feared. So verse 20, then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles have been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. And then verse 23, and you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No. You'll go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it would be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. We so need Jesus' rest. For rest includes security from judgment. He says here that the towns in Galilee, they're in deep trouble. Jesus had done so much there, all those miracles, etc. They didn't repent. Right? They had Jesus among them, but they failed to come to him for mercy. Better off to be Sodom on Judgment Day. That town in Genesis 18:19, which was destroyed by God, a town where men tried to pack rape two of God's angels. Better off to be them. Now, stop for a moment. I want you just in your mind to imagine 
Someone you know or group you know that you feel like would be the worst sinners out there. Just think in your mind for a moment who that is. Are you picturing them? Well, Jesus says, come judgment day, better to be them than you. You, if you have heard about Jesus, come to church, gone to Bible studies, taken Lord's Supper, but not repented, properly throwing yourself at the feet of the Lord Jesus for mercy. Fear God. Fear God by coming to Jesus. You have knowledge. You are accountable. Don't refuse him. And one more thing to say about fearing God here. God is the one who chooses those to be saved. And he bypasses the arrogant. So verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you're pleased to do. The Father's not obliged to save anybody. That's the baseline. We need to appreciate that. God is not obliged to save anybody. He owes us nothing. All we've given him is our rebellion. That he reveals himself, that he saves anybody is incredible. He's truly merciful and so Jesus praises him here. But notice his choice bypasses the wise and the learned, that is, you know, the professors and the influencers and so on. So beware of that. We've got to be like little children recognising our spiritual need. And again in verse 27, it speaks of God's sovereign choice. It says this time, via the Son, as they work together in this. So verse 27, all things are being committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You want to know the Father? Then you've got to come via the Son. Couldn't be more plain here, could it? That he is truly the gate for the sheep. He is the way to the Father. He admits those whom he pleases, those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, yes, our choice is absolutely necessary. I mean, that's the next verse, right? That's the very next verse. Come to me, you who are weary and burdened. But you can only accept that offer because he first chose to unlock the stubbornness of your own heart and make you want to come. God has a genuine choice of whom he will save. So again, I say, fear him, revere him. Stand in humble awe before God. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, hang on a second. <laughs> how could, how could uh, you know, God make that choice and our choice be genuine in any sense if he first chose us? Well, perhaps this will help. Does iron sink or does iron float? Real question. Who thinks iron sinks? Who thinks iron floats? A few less hands on the second one. Have a look at this picture here. There it is. It depends on the shape, doesn't it? The answer is both. We just needed a little more information. So iron in the shape of a boat floats happily on the water, but iron in the shape of a nail or a weight 
is going to sink straight to the bottom. We just needed that bit of extra information to understand. That God chooses you 100%, that you choose God 100% seems contradictory, but we can trust God. He has the extra information that we don't have. And of course God is complex. Of course he understands things that we don't. But we can trust him. We can trust him. Fear God by coming to Jesus for he is our Lord, he is our judge. These are profound truths, aren't they? That's one aspect, one angle on God in this chapter. The other is that God is extraordinary, that he is wonderful. This is our second point. And so God is wonderful. You should want his rest. You should want his rest. So the picture here is of beautiful Jesus, the Messiah who comes healing, proclaiming good news to the poor, bringing in the day of the Lord, where the least of a city's kingdom are greater than the greatest of the old covenant prophets. In love, he reveals the Father to us. He invites us to come to enjoy being his disciples. What a picture. And so look at verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Make no mistake, he is Lord, but he invites us to enjoy him, to enjoy his gentle and humble leadership and guidance in our lives. His leadership and guidance. Now, what is a yoke? A yoke is a beam of wood that goes across a couple of oxen or cows or whatever that they might share in pulling a plough. Note that Jesus is not beside the animals with a whip, kind of driving them along or something like that. We're yoked to him. We're yoked to him. The images of him working alongside us, helping us to live his ways with gentleness, with uh, personal guidance, with care. Uh, now, it's an easy yoke. It's a light burden because we are with him. So make no mistake, following Jesus is service. It is service, right? His rest is not sitting on a deck chair with a drink, with a cool drink. It is service, but service that is perfect freedom. Um, the other night, my wife Susan happened to be telling us how much her life changed when she was 17 and when she became a Christian. Um, purpose uh, replaced her boredom. Joy replaced her burden. And glorifying God replaced her inward focus. Being yoked to Jesus is about worship. It's about love. It's about being on mission with him, knowing that he is with us to the very end of the age. Plowing alongside us, carrying the brunt of the load, but helping us, guiding us, showing us. That's total contrast to the Pharisees, the leaders that Jesus kept having to confront in his day. So chapter 23, he says of them, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Right? They're just beside the animals cracking the whip. That's it. 
very next chapter, you'll see the Pharisees, this is next week, you'll see the Pharisees trying to kill Jesus because he won't adhere to their little rules that they're making up, their religious rules. So let me ask, what's your experience been of following Jesus? For me, I so appreciate his gentle hand on my life over the years. I became a Christian age 11 and uh, God quickly put people around me, um, particularly at school, the lunchtime Christian group at my state school, so another plug for youth work that we heard about earlier. Um, God taught me through the scriptures gently, carefully, nurturing me, growing me, um, showing me that you know, even in the good and the bad of life, even when he had to confront me over sin, for example, that he was gentle, that he was kind in doing that. How about you? He promises rest for your soul. And that's eternal rest, yes, but it's not just future, it's present. Do you know him now as that gentle master? Do you rest in him? That relationship with a loving Lord who cares for you day by day. Do you know true spiritual rest with him through the thick and the thin of life? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Just finished reading the book Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. This is about Nabil Qureshi, a devout Muslim who slowly, reluctantly, painfully even, finally uh, came to Jesus in faith by exploring the historical truths of Jesus and Muhammad. And part of the journey for him was the realisation that Islam was a burden, that he was feeling it as a burden upon him, submitting to his rules, and not sure that he would actually have forgiveness were he to break those rules. And then he finally reads through these very chapters of, John, of uh, Matthew's Gospel that we've been studying at the moment, and he found true rest for his souls. Let me quote him as he discovers Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not blessed are the righteous, but blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I hunger and thirst for righteousness, I do, but I can never attain it. God will bless me anyway. Who is this God? who loves me so much even in my failures. Tears flowed from my eyes once more, but now they were tears of joy. I knew that what I held in my hands was life itself. This was truly God's word. God is wonderful. God is wonderful. We should want his rest. Well, we began with three weary and burdened people. Let's come back to them and consider what Jesus might say to them. Remember the weary worker stuck following some kind of unwritten script of life taught by the preachers of this world on a treadmill? Jesus would say to the weary worker, don't be conned. Take a look my way. I came for the weary. I love you. I love you, come to me, find rest for your soul. To the burdened boomers, Jesus would say, look, you've got the wisdom of years to see that this world doesn't 
satisfy. You're old enough, though, you can't put off answers any longer on heaven and hell. You're right about outward religion seeming like a wet blanket. That's, I agree with you. That's why I came. That's why I came, that you could know rest and purpose through relationship with me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'll give you something to wake up for now and into eternity. And to the shouldn't-be-burdened Christian, beloved, we are yoked together. If my yoke feels heavy, that is because you are pulling against me. You're turning back. You're filling your eyes with the the tinsel of this passing world instead of meeting my loving eye. Fulfillment and joy found in giving yourself fully to me. There's an old-time preacher called J.C. Ryle who put it this way. He said, May we never be satisfied till we know and feel that we've come to Christ by faith for rest and do still come to him for fresh supplies of grace every day. If we have come to him already, let us learn to cleave to him more closely. Good advice. And if we've never come to him yet, let us begin by coming to him today. Our Lord is fearsome and wonderful. Do you know that you need him? Do you genuinely want him? Friends, come to him. Let me pray for us. Dear gracious God, how we need you. How we need you and how incredibly gracious and good and kind you are in sending the Lord Jesus, in delaying the judgment, in bringing in this time, a time of the message going out to the ends of the world, even to our own hearts today. Father God, perhaps there are some here in the room now, perhaps all of us, who in some sense need to just come to you now and say, I'm weary, I'm burdened, I need you. Perhaps we'll take a moment of silence to do that. Father God, thank you that you hear us when we come to you. Seek and you will find. And so, gracious God, we throw ourselves upon you. We're so thankful for the Lord Jesus. And help us to serve alongside him all the days of our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name.